Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Kerry Thomas, one of the editors at Tortoise. It's the week ending Friday the 19th of January, and from Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Pakistan has launched strikes inside Iran after Iran attacked targets in Pakistan. In the meantime, the U.S. says it hit more missile sites of Iran-backed rebels inside Yemen. The government's flagship Rwanda asylum legislation has easily cleared the commons. Fujitsu would like to apologise for our part in this appalling miscarriage of justice. Former longtime Meta COO Cheryl Sandberg has announced that she will be leaving the board of directors. Tata Steel has confirmed it's cutting 2,800 jobs across the UK by 2027. Two and a half thousand of those will come from the firm's Port Talbot site in South Wales. First came the news that the Princess of Wales was in hospital, having had abdominal surgery and would be there for some time. Then the news that the King also needed an operation. So this is a podcast where four of us try to figure out what should lead the news. Although in the end, because news has never really been much of a democracy, I get to decide which one is going to be top. But to help me work it out, I've got with me Tortoise's news editor, Jess Winch. Hello. And climate editor, Jeevan Vasagar. Hi, Kerry. And after what it says here has been a difficult week for the Prime Minister, I think, although I think we could say that most weeks at the moment, and really delighted to be joined from Westminster by the Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls. Katie, you're really welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so as usual, let's start with what we call long stories short. So in a single sentence or just a few words, um, I'm just going to ask each of you what it is you want to talk about. So just let me start with you. What's your story? Flashing red, Pakistan and Iran, airstrikes on each other. Thank you. And Katie, what is it you want to pitch today? I want to pitch Sunak faces down the rebels, but will his plan work? Great. And finally, Jeevan, what's on your mind? I'm, I'm pitching, uh, sorry seems to be the hardest word, Fujitsu and the Subpost Masters. OK, so, so Jess, let me start with you, because this news has been coming in um, over the last few hours. Just, just fill us in on, on where we are you know, as we sit here today. So as we sit here recording, it's Thursday afternoon. On Thursday morning, Pakistan launched airstrikes against targets inside Iran. And this comes two days after Iran launched strikes inside Pakistan. Both sides say that they're targeting militant groups on, in just, in, just over the border. And both sides say that the strikes have resulted in civilian deaths, including children on both sides. And I think there's a few things to, to know in order to make sense of this. One is that Iran and Pakistan have been pretty good neighbours up until this happened. So this is quite an, it's not an, it's an escalation in tension, I suppose, would be the cliched way to say it. But this is a pretty, this is a pretty bad week um, for the two of them as neighbours. It doesn't look at the moment as though either side really wants to take it any further. 
Pakistan on Thursday has issued a statement calling the two countries brotherly, which sort of implies that, well, you've done your thing, we've done ours, let's let's leave it there, that Pakistan had to retaliate in some way. But that I think the bigger picture, if you step back from this, is that it feeds into what David Cameron was talking about at the weekend, which is that there are a lot of lights flashing red at the moment on the global dashboard. There's this sense that if you just look around what's happening in the Middle East, you've got Hamas versus Israel, you've got Israel versus Hezbollah, you've got Houthis firing on ships, you've got the US and UK targeting Houthis, Houthi targets within Yemen. Now you've got Iran, which just this week, as well as Pakistan, has been hitting targets in northern Iraq and Syria. And it feels as though it really doesn't take much at this point for someone to misstep or to someone for someone to misunderstand and for things to really spiral out of control. Because the whole mantra, hasn't it, since the US deployed its forces to the Gulf in response to the October the 7th killings, since America and the UK and a few others um, launched those attacks on the Houthis, the whole mantra has been, we've, we've got this. We're not going to let this escalate. We're calibrating everything that we do. But the more you look at it, the more implausible mm. the idea that um, the US... Um, the UK, anybody is in charge of of the consequences of yes, it's all, each of it's these, these ripple effects uh, that you don't quite know what your action may lead to someone else doing. And then, and I- Iran, it's important to say one one analyst described it as they're trying to send a lot of messages with a lot of missiles to a lot of actors all at once this week with all their various strikes, and it all seems to date back to not necessarily October 7th, but to January when there was a terrorist attack inside Iran, which was the deadliest since 1979, since the revolution killed over 80 people. And that this is in response to a lot of domestic pressure within Iran to try and show strength, to try and project that they've they've got this, as it were, that they, they can kind of still hold their own and send a message. But they've also now pulled in Pakistan, which is a nuclear armed state, into the mix. And suddenly you see these red lights kind of spreading further and further. And that, I think, is something that um, that matters. Is your impression that Iran has been at the fulcrum of a number of these sort of events that we hadn't seen coming? Is it your impression that they, they are launching the attacks on the people they're launching them on because they can't attack who they'd really like to attack, which would be the US? I think it's in their interests to attack the people that they, they can without pulling in the US. I mean, I don't think Iran wants to target the US. I don't think it wants to go there, but it has to show that it's it has to be able to project strength while trying to control the repercussions of its actions. I think what you saw this week is what Iran said were kind of specific strikes on specific uh, militant groups within Pakistan. Pakistan likewise responded in kind by saying that these were very precision strikes. They described them as a measured targeted response. So you can see the language on both sides, again, trying to say We've got this under control. My, I think why this story is on, uh, is sort of leading the news sites, and why I think it it should um, this week is the fact that you just don't know where it might go next. And I think while there's an off ramp at the moment between Pakistan and Iran, one more strike from either side takes us into unknown territory. Katie, um, when you're talking to people around Westminster about how well this sort of strategy of trying to prevent escalation in in the Middle East is going. How how worried do you think people are? 
I mean, I think politicians are worried, and I think it's to Jess's point, which is, you know, uh, the Cameron comments about, you know, the dashboard flashing red. And um, if you think about even, I think, David Cameron's appointment, you can debate whether or not it was a wise move for various reasons to bring David Cameron back. But I think there was a sense that if you look at um, the crises across the world right now and how complex they are, a war on the continent, but also what's happening in the Middle East, it's not really the time to bring a rookie in who doesn't know how these things work. And one of the biggest things going in David Cameron's favour, regardless of, I suppose, his record on foreign affairs decisions when he was prime minister, is that he he does know how all these things work. He knows the protocol and so forth. So I think there's a sense it's a very serious time for foreign affairs and um, to balance all these different conflicts. And then you uh, with also uncertainty in a, in the year of, you know, the most elections in some time, um, decades, uh, where you, you don't know where the US is going to be, depending on what happens in the US election, and uh, you know if it's going to be President Trump. I think that that is one of the things that really worries politicians in Westminster, which is even with the current problems and the the fact that the Middle East and these multi conflicts and different factors, we could have a situation by the end of the year where some of our usual Western alliances are not um, the 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 friends that we're used to relying on in in the way that we would in the past expect them to because you're right as you say the the breadth of what's happening across the middle east now would stretch uk diplomatic resources at any time you'd think wouldn't it but particularly then given given the war in ukraine and you know and the and the big backdrop as you say of of um you know the number of democratic elections that we're expecting all around the world this year that that the foreign office must be under enormous enormous pressure at the moment yeah, exactly. And and I, and I do think you see that in the, who they decided to put in charge of it and things. It wasn't just about boost, boosting uh, Rishi Sunak, which I'm not sure it did. Um, but I think, um, I think it, it is just that sense of, can you keep the support that you have in Ukraine while also trying to contain or act, you know, like a broker in some of the things that are happening in the Middle East in terms of the world order? And I think that... Um, the decision for Rishi Sunak to fly to Ukraine when the Houthi strikes were still were happening. So he held the cabinet call from the car on the way there. Um, and there was obviously some discussion, should he cancel his visit and stay there and focus? But I think they decided in the end, because there are so many different things, crises at the moment, You don't. it would be almost a suggestion that the UK can't be where it wants to be on Ukraine while dealing with, with these other things, which is why he decided to, to still go. Yeah. And Jeevan, just to go back to, to the, where we started all this, um, Iran and Pakistan, what, was there anything about that that struck you particularly? I was going to say, Kerry, that Pakistan and Iran describing each other as brotherly is a bit like the Gallagher brothers. I think there are two things that I find particularly um, striking about this. One of them is, if you look at the context, the broader context of the attacks on targets in Iraq and Syria as well, what's striking is that both the targets, some of the targets and some of the actors in this case aren't states. They're the Houthis or the Hezbollah who have access to really sophisticated weaponry. That seems like a new development to me. Uh, and the other thing that I think is really interesting and I, I would love to see unpicked more, we've seen some of Iran's military capability from the war in Ukraine, from their role as a supplier of drones to Russia. This is showing us much more. And I guess the question I'd raise about this is what is the purpose or effectiveness of years of sanctions if Iran has this capacity to develop very sophisticated weapons? That seems to me a really interesting part of this story that I'd love to see more reporting on. Great. Okay, good one for us for the future. Let's leave that there for now. Katie, let's come on to you. Let's put you in the hot seat. So um, so your story is Rwanda and, and what particular aspect of what's been going on this week? So I think the week began with 
Tory psychodrama for a change, um, I jest, in the sense it is often what happens. Um, but I think it obviously began in the sense, is this, uh, you know, a plot against Rishi Sunak in terms of his critics circling? But I think where the story is now is effectively, once again, the Tory rebels are more talk um, than they are action. And it's a pretty small number. You only had 11 Tory MPs voting against it. Um, so I think that where the story has moved to is... Yes, I think it's almost priced in. You're going to have a disunited Tory party and some that will keep almost flinging rocks at Rishi Sunak probably all t up until polling day. But the question is, the Rwanda plan remains intact, but will it work? And you now have Rishi Sunak giving a press conference saying, uh, telling the House of Lords, please, you know, push this through very quickly. Do not oppose it. But you almost read between the lines and, and you can't help but wonder whether he would like uh, Labour peers to oppose it. Because then you could effectively say, oh, the reason, the reason we haven't got a flight to Rwanda before the election is because of Labour and the House of Laws, and all these people who stopped us. And if they hadn't stopped us, it would have all been you know, perfect to plan. And I think where he might may end up is actually Labour can see how if they block it, it could come back on them. And there'll clearly be some attempts for amendments in the Lords. But if it clears the Lords, I think is quite probably the most likely, you have a situation whereby it then goes back to the courts. And the question is, do you have a situation where right now, Suella Bravman, Robert Jenrick, those who were in the 11, they look pretty isolated, um, you know, going into the same voting lobby as Jeremy Corbyn. I think the colleagues are unimpressed. But where this could, I think, flip and have repercussions in terms of the election, but also the Tory leadership contest that would follow a defeat, is if the scheme still doesn't work, if it's still bogged up in the courts, um, I think Rishi Sunak is going to face a very big backlash from his own side. And before you know it, people who would have an enhanced reputation amongst the Tory grassroots would be those 11 who opposed it. Now, if he gets a flight, I also think that could be not what saves the Tories in an election, but I do think it would make things harder for Labour because they'd have to say a bit more than just the classic, oh, your scheme doesn't work, so we don't need to talk about our plans in detail. Yeah, and, and that press conference that Rishi Sunak held on Thursday... Uh, it it had quite an unusual. It, it it provoked quite an unusual reaction. A lot of people are just saying, we can't quite understand why he held it. So, what was your? I mean, first of all, just because it may not be all that widely reported, just give us a sort of couple of lines on what Sunak actually said. But I'd be really interested to know why you think he held that presser. Yeah, in terms of what he said, he was trying to say that the point of the press conference was to talk about the next stages of the bill. Now it's going to the Lords and say, peers, please do not amend this bill. Do not disrupt the will of the people. Let's get it through and law as soon as possible. And along the way, he tried to land as many, I think, partisan attacks on Labour as possible. And that that also went beyond boats. And to, did you hear about Keir Starmer and his 28 billion plan for green spending? that's going to mean tax rises. So I think it was a very political press conference. So in terms of why he held it, um, the boats bill was originally meant to be a way to deal with the problems in terms of stopping the boats, but also was meant to be this unifier for the Tory party, whereby they would unite around stopping the boats and they would take the fight and you know put all the blame at Labour and institutions and the courts. Instead, obviously, it's become Tories fighting each other. And that's been the main takeaway from this week. I think the press conference was trying to move it back to that to say, 
we've actually got this through a very small number of rebels and we should be talking about Labour and what they're doing. Um, and that's why it felt very much like an election year press conference, in my view, um, with it all coming back to, why don't you ask Keir Starmer list? Um, effectively, I'd, I suspect it's not going to be that impactful unless he can actually show his plan is working. Yeah. One of the things that struck me looking at it was, because obviously Rishi Sunak, again, could not promise, because he can't promise, that a single flight will get away before the election. How much are we seeing, do you think, an attempt just to raise the salience of, never mind Rwanda, but immigration as an issue? Because it's a way for Conservatives to deal with both the threat from their right, uh, from reform, and to some extent the drift of some votes towards Labour as well. Is this partly just trying to put some, some real air behind immigration before November, do you think? So I think that was initially what was happening, because you've seen raising the salience, whether it was Priti Patel as Home Secretary, Suella Bravman, Rishi Sunak this time last year, making one of his five priorities to stop the boats, which some of his colleagues at the time warned him against and said, this is just too bold a pledge. You know, you could say, reduce the number of boats crossings. And, you know, they would say, but he chose to go with it. I actually think now there's much more of a debate in the party as whether raising the salience is the right thing to do. And you can already see in the past week, if you think back to last week, Rishi was talking far more about the economy. When Isaac Levido, the official Tory election strategist, addressed MPs on Monday night in a, a private meeting, he was saying the economy will be front and centre. So I think there is, there is almost a realisation that talking endlessly about stopping the boats while having very little to point to isn't actually a genius vote-winning strategy. And perhaps it helps reform and other parties when you do so. Of course, they're now on this path. So I think where you where they have what they think is a minor win or they, they can control the narrative like they did with their press conference, they'll try and do it. But I think generally you will be hearing a bit less about boats and more about the economy um, in, the, in the coming weeks and months until they hope they've got something more they can say. If they've got something they can say in terms of a flight, I think they will talk a lot about it. But I think there has been a bit of a realisation that what are we getting from constantly talking about something which, uh, you know, voters are not hearing? There was an interesting report saying if you, it was a poll, I think, by Onward, which was looking at if you ask people, you know, what you think the number in terms of legal migration is, people will say 70,000, which is much lower than what it is, which is around 700,000. And therefore, I think, again, it's one of those eye-openers, some in government say, Maybe we should talk less about it then if when people here they're surprised into thinking it's worse than they thought it was anyway. Yeah. I mean, the curious thing still for me is that, you know, you remember one, I forget who it was, which, which Tory backbencher likened Rishi Sunak returning to Rwanda constantly as, as like a dog returning to its vomit. And if the promise is, I'm going to go back to my vomit a bit less often from now on, then it still doesn't seem like a genius idea, does it? No, and but I mean, I suppose I would say it's, it's very easy to tear down the strategy and say, oh, why are they talking about it? And there are some, I mean, I think Craig Oliver, um, who was director of comms under David Cameron, has said, you know, actually, it's the Tories' fault for raising the salience of this issue. I think it would still be a voter issue even if, if they weren't talking about it. And it can be, you can almost go too much the other way and thinking if, if you don't talk about these things, people are, you know, no one's going to, it will be less of a thing. I think particularly for the voters they're targeting, the 2019 voters, um, the ones they want to keep, it's really high up there in things that they are worried about. You see the impact in terms of, uh, you know, the hotels that have been used, um, obviously you get into the barge, they try all the problems with that. Um, so it does have these impacts, but I think... Um, 
when it comes to Rwanda plan, it is, to, to your point about the, the dog and the vomit, I think just becoming more of a net negative and almost this, um, the fact that Keir Starmer, who doesn't have, you know, he, he's got ideas on how to fix it, but they're not particularly new in terms of uh, things of thought. The fact that he can now use Prime Minister's questions and joke around and look really in his element on an issue that traditionally Labour have found quite tricky, I think just does show what a hole the Tories are in on it. Yeah. So just if I'm reading you right, you don't think that the 2024 election slogan is going to be get Rwanda done, but it will be part of the mix, you think, if they haven't got a flight away before then? Yeah, I think that there are some Tory MPs, particularly the rebels, who would love to have a Brexit part two election, you know, leave the ECHR, get, you know, Brexit part two, stop the boats, get the boats done. I don't think that's where Rishi Sunak is. I think if they have enough to point to, I think it will clearly be an element, but unless they get a flight, they're not. And also, where is Rishi Sunak the most comfortable talking? The economy. I think that will be front and centre. Stephen, what's been your impression it has. I mean, Rwanda has dominated a lot of the news this week. Um, what have you? What, what have you taken away from it? Well, a couple of things really. I mean, one of them is there's a sort of through the looking glass kind of feel to it, isn't there? This is a bill that basically instructs the courts to ignore the Supreme Court ruling, which told us that there were sort of systemic problems with Rwanda, particularly with their asylum pricing processing system. Um, as we've reported at Tortoise, I mean, Israel had a similar deal with Rwanda and um, asylum claimants were being returned to countries where they weren't safe. But I think actually my, my main impression is really from watching Rishi Sunak. And, and there's something quite bizarre about him. If you look at Trump, Trump is basically a New York liberal who's posing brilliantly as a populist and really convincing you. Sunak, I think, genuinely believes in some horrible things, but he can't convince you that he does. He just comes across as a nerd. And I think that there's a sort of fundamental problem there in, in, in actually believing that he, that, he, that he wants to do any of these things. An unconvincing populist, you think? Exactly. Yeah. Jess? I think when the Rwandan leader is offering to return your money you know you've probably made a mistake and it's just that just gone so wrong now as you say they just keep highlighting an issue that they're not winning on and i'm i'm so tired of it i'm so tired of having to keep talking about it and having to keep seeing it on the front pages when it just seems much more about how the conservative party is going to al- align itself post-election yeah. than anything that's actually going to look at either illegal or legal migration challenges Great. Katie, thanks for that story. We're going to take a short break and then come back to you, Jeevan, to hear a bit more about uh, Fujitsu and its role in the wrongful conviction of all those sub-postmasters. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
So Jeevan, Fujitsu, initially slightly the bridesmaid at this particular wedding with the post office, but now becoming, um, you know, started to make speeches of its own and uh, and um, move into the move into the spotlight a bit more. Um, it's now been much briskly up the nave, yeah. Just yeah, some, or down the nave, I can't quite tell. But um, so so what's what's your take on what we're seeing? So so just to recap for the maybe five people in the country who haven't seen the ITV show, uh, Fujitsu developed the Horizon system. They said in court that Horizon, the system was robust, that individual cases were isolated, uh, and that they didn't have remote access to sub-postmasters terminals. And all of those claims have turned out to be false. So, so what's happened this week is that Fujitsu have said, um, look, we're sorry, we were involved from the start, we did have bugs in our system, we did help the post office in their prosecutions, and, and yes, we do have an obligation to, to compensate the sub-postmasters. Uh, and what they've also said is they're not going to be bidding for any more um, government contracts while this inquiry is ongoing. So that's this year. So my question about this story, well, two questions really. One of them is why now? And the why now question, you know, this is years and years after a high court ruling established all of these things back in 2019. So it established Fujitsu's culpability at that point. Um, and that might have been the moment for them to apologise. They're doing it now partly because of the show and partly because they're back in front of an inquiry giving evidence. And over the next few weeks, we're going to hear uh, from uh, Fujitsu's employees about exactly what the relationship with the post office was, um, exactly what they said in court and uh, what where, where the discrepancies are. Um, I think the other part of why now is damage limitation. So uh, the government has set aside a billion pounds for compensation. Fujitsu is obviously aware that it's going to be on the hook for some of that. Um, my guess is that it's going to be a relatively small part of that. It'll be uh, as little as they can get away with. This is an enormous company, makes billions of dollars a year uh, in annual turnover. Uh, the UK is a relatively small part of their business, but it's a very profitable part of their business. And I think what really, really matters to them um, is being able to uh, apply for government business in future. And that's what they're really looking to. So when they're saying, you know, we're not going to apply for anything this year. Well, that's a bit like saying, you know, I'm going to fire myself before you fire me. They were never going to get any contracts this year because they're under such media and political scrutiny. Their hope is that they can survive this. Their hope is they can weather the storm, that the apology is going to be sufficient, some money to the victims is going to be sufficient and in a year's time it'll be forgotten that's the bet here because i suppose critically the thing we don't know yet is um as you say for years the post office denied there was a backdoor into this horizon system that was run by fujitsu we don't know at what point i mean fujitsu designed the system so the assumption has to be that obviously they knew from the start that 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 backdoor existed but we don't know when they told the post office that it was there do we yeah that's right so the 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 date that's emerged from the inquiry is 2002 that there was an internal Fujitsu document in 2002 that showed uh, that they they thought there was a backdoor um what isn't clear is when exactly the communication with the post office happened and obviously there there were hundreds of prosecutions after that date um so yeah uh, a really big problem here because I think the first just to sort of Go back to my own little bit of history in this one. The first whistleblower from Fujitsu who acknowledged there was the back door into the system, I think, appeared on a panorama that I was involved in in 2015. So just one of the baffling things about this case is the timelines are just huge, aren't they? 2002, Fujitsu seemed to think there was a back door. 13 years later, someone tells the BBC that that's the case. Nine years further on, we still don't know when Fujitsu told the post office that it was there. I don't know. It's, it's just the duration of this is just... It's simply extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and it's, it's it's ruined people's lives. People have died in the interim. I mean, it's it's just far too long, far too slow moving. Yeah, and so you don't think the the moves that Fujitsu are making to to you know to to take themselves out of the contracting process for the duration of this inquiry, you you think they're unlikely to work? So my my, I think their bet is this will be sufficient and that. Uh, memories are short and uh, people will, will forget in a year's time. My hunch about this is that it isn't enough and this scandal will deepen and there'll and, be... And it's not the only Fujitsu contract that's had a bit of a bad smell, is it? Exactly. So there was there was a Fujitsu contract with the NHS, uh, which I think um, happened before the post office contract, happened before the post office contract problems really came to light. Um, and that was one the government uh, attempted to terminate uh, because there were problems with that. So I think the focus now is going to shift onto other Fujitsu contracts, behaviour and other contracts. So I think this this will deepen for them. Yeah. Katie, uh, from around Westminster, do you think MPs are likely to focus still more on the post office than on Fujitsu? Because that's the public body, that's the that's the great British brand, that's the, that's the heart of this scandal. Do you think we're still going to be seeing more about them than the computer company? I think probably, but I think they're clearly looking at both if you look at what's happened this week. And I think um, when it comes to Fujitsu, I mean, interesting story in the Financial Times earlier this week about attempts to try and limit uh, the contracts they could do. Um, I think it was called Operation Sushi uh, at one point, uh, several years ago. Um, but they found it was actually very hard to do that based on the on the the rules they had on procurement and how you arrange these things. So I think it's always a bit easier said than done to know blanket ban a company particularly once it's so big and into doing those things but it's clearly one where they they have been thinking about it for a few years I think we are definitely in the mudslinging stage perhaps as every day in Westminster um, whereby I think even on Fujitsu you have lots of MPs saying well Francis Maud he tried to crack down on this and actually it was the Liberal Democrats when we were in coalition who made it really difficult um, and, and trying to say you know bring it back to party lines I think one of the interesting things about the scandal though is there's just no party that isn't implicated in some way you know every partly because of the length of time that we've just been hearing about um, that this has been going on um, all the people in different roles it feels like it does need um, you know a slightly institutional change in terms of how things are run to fix some of the lessons from it. Rather, it's, it was one of those ones where you can't really say, oh, this was Labour being rubbish on X or the Tories being bad at government and Y and so forth. Yeah. And and just, just very quickly to circle back on something that happened last week rather than this, when Ed, Sir Ed Davey couldn't bring himself to apologise properly to victims of this scandal, what's your impression now of the damage that did him? So I think it was damaging. I think... What has been a bit tricky is, of course, it seemed as though Ed Davey was under quite a lot of pressure, getting jeered in the chamber and so forth. And then, of course, we moved to Tory psychodrama over the Rwanda bill. So that's where everyone's attention went. But I think the problem for Ed Davey is if you are the leader of a smaller party like the Liberal Democrats, most of the country don't really know who you are. And your time in an election campaign when the broadcasting rules change tends to be when you get to make almost your first impression to the public. So there was uh, a Live Dem training day or a away day before Christmas, and they were game planning different scenarios of what to expect when that moment comes. You think about Clegg mania. And one of the scenarios was that you could get Davy mania. And were you to get a Davy mania, there was a serious question as to like, what do you do at that point? Do you, because it can be quite short lived. 
So you need to try to capitalize on it without losing the excitement, while also not getting so excited you suddenly up your seat target count to a point you can't get, and then you lose every seat, which tends to ha- which happens quite a lot to the Lib Dems when they, they get they overfire, they get a bit caught up. But I don't think in any of the scenarios um, that they were thinking about was the one that actually came this year, and it means that if you look at his net approval ratings, I think they've gone down about nine points um, according to a poll of, uh, at the weekend, and that is quite damaging if you are in a a smaller party because you don't have that many opportunities to make that impression with the public. So lots of people who've met him now for the first time in terms of seeing him have a negative impression. And the hour they spent talking about Davy Maney is another hour the Lib Dems will never get back, more things. Um, Okay, thank you all. Um, We now get to the kind of easy bit of this podcast where I'm going to ask each of you if we're not going to lead on your story, who else's story you would lead on? So, Jess... If we weren't going to do the Middle East, where would you go? If we weren't going to do the Middle East, then I would go to Fujitsu. Would you? Any apology. Katie? Yeah, if we weren't going to lead on my story, I'd probably go to Jess's because I think that sometimes, particularly when talking about Tory MPs squabbling, it feels a bit <laughs> smaller fry. And I think uh, where we're going in terms of the instability is going to be something that dominates the rest of the year. OK. And, and that's not just because you both turned up wearing the same shirt. That's happy yeah. coincidence. That, that wasn't the deciding factor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jeevan, uh, finally? I think there are many um, compelling questions about the Iran story, but I think the one I'd lead with is Rwanda because of what it tells us about the governing party's mindset in an election year. Uh, that's very, very fair minded of all of you, but I'm, I can't be completely fair minded. So it's actually, this is a tricky one because I, I think these are all. I've said before, I think the post office story is just it, it, one of my great regrets of the last 15 years. Is I haven't done more on that story. It's just it, it, it's all there. And I keep finding out new things about it. So I, I absolutely love that as a story. But I think um, at the moment I'm minded to choose between the Middle East and Rwanda. And in the end, I'm going to go with you, Jess, and the Middle East, because I just think that unless we keep tabs on some of these red dots as they appear, then we're going to get really caught by surprise one day when, when some one of these things turns into the bigger thing that we all fear. So apologies to you, Katie, because Rwanda is compelling. Um, but I do think, left to my own devices today, I would go first with Iran-Pakistan, just to mark that and just as a chance to get back into tracing as many of those alarm bells and you know, keeping an eye on them as we can. Um, Rwanda second up and uh, in a very, very honourable third place to even the post office. That's it for this episode of the news meeting. Um, Katie, really grateful to you. I, I know you've got a dash now, but thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Jess and Jeevan, I'll see you both very soon. Um, Giles Wattel will be back from the slopes of Davos to present Monday's episode, so please join him then. In the meantime, have a good weekend and thanks for listening. Tortoise. 